All right, so if you have your Bibles this evening, go ahead and take them out and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're working our way through Paul's letter to a church that he started and the place he spent about 18 months in pouring out his heart to this church. This church was located in a very carnal sin city, if you will. It was a place where every sort of sin was available, celebrated, and paraded even. And uh, it was in this culture that this church was planted. Paul's uh, writing this letter to them because he got word uh, from someone from Chloe's household. We don't really know who that is, but he got word from someone from the church at Corinth... And he was told that things were not going well in the church. And the reason was, was because as he left, the people that took over the church did what often happens today and really could be looked at as uh, what the church culture is in Western civilization, especially in America, is uh, it became... Pragmatic in a, a sense to where leaders of the church thought they knew better than the instruction that Paul gave them about how to build the church, about the importance of the integrity of the church and where the power of the church lie, the foundation of the church, all those things that Paul would have instructed them in. But as he left, people thought, well, there's probably a better way to do this. And we think we were slicker than Paul. And we think that we have some special ways to meet the people in our culture. And because of that, they, they became carnal or worldly. They looked more like the world than they looked more like heaven. The church should look more like heaven than like the world. But when we begin to, in our own wisdom, adapt how we do church and take upon ourselves the liberty to use techniques and use ways to reach people that are unbiblical, then we will find ourselves looking more like the world. The church will lose its influence, it will lose its power, and it will lose its ability to be what God has called it to be. So the church of Corinth you could say is exactly like really what's going on in many cases in America. So the, this book has been instrumental in my personal development. And then really a lot of the things that are in here are why we do what we do as a church. This is what we've taken, uh, other things as well. But as you look at this, you'll start to realize that um, these are the ways that we see and view the way we should be doing church. And so Paul started off, and we, we went through the first couple chapters, and we looked at how the Apostle Paul, he's writing back, and he's, he's telling them that there's just divisions. There's fighting. There's separation. There's sex. There's all these things going on. And so he tried to bring them back to the fact that when he came to them, he didn't use any 
worldly techniques or Greek philosophy or speech that would appeal to people. In fact, he just put that all aside because he said he wanted their faith not to be in men, but in God. And that is so impactful and insightful for us today as we've seen, well, depending on how old you are, you've seen the endless cycles of different church movements. And if it's not built on Christ, they come and go. They come and go. And as you look at that in culture, there's always like the new hot thing. And many of those uh, new hot things, they appeal to younger people. And in many ways, they appeal by worldly um, ways to attract people. And the end of that cannot be good. And Paul, he's telling them that. And he's trying to correct them. And he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to have to be in this position to have to explain and come down hard on them. But he's willing to do it. Why? Because the integrity and the purity of the church is so important. And when culture starts to take the church and the church starts to drift away in the way of culture, you just don't have a church anymore. It's not a church. And so as we get into chapter 3 and 4 tonight, let's just be asking the Lord in our own lives individually and then also corporately as our, in our church body, how are we doing? What kind of letter would Paul write to our church? And what would he say to us? And are we open to correcting and changing course? And are we open to a strong rebuke if we need it? That's what we want to look at today. So it starts off in chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, And I, brethren, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. So starting chapter 3, we now get a third grouping of people. If you'll turn uh, just, well, I don't know if you need to turn. depends on how your Bible's set up. But if you look at chapter 2, verse 14, we have another person that's described in verse 14. It says, but chapter 2, 14, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And then in verse 13, it says, these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things to spiritual. And he's talking to another group of people. So we have spiritual people, we have natural people, and now we have carnal people. So spiritual people were natural people. Spiritual people were people like every single person born into the world, as a natural person. They're born of their mothers and they're born without a relationship with God. They're born separated from God. And so because of that, a natural person, they live their life governed by their their own self. So their self tells them what to do. So they're, they're led by their 
desires, their own, own desires. They're led by um, the things that the world would tempt them to do and the way the world would tempt them to think. Completely unspiritual, completely unconnected or disconnected to the things of God. The Bible says if we're going to worship God, we must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So completely cut off from God. But that person, if they will come to God by faith, they become a spiritual person. So they become what the Bible says, born again, a child of God. They have a new life in Christ. And so that's an actual transition that happens where someone goes from a natural person to a spiritual person. That person has their eyes open. They are able to understand and see spiritual things. They view themselves and the world, heaven and hell and sin. They view those things differently. But then this third category of people is a group of people who are actually born again, have the Holy Spirit living inside of them, but they're not governed by God, but they're governed by themselves. So there's a very fine line, let me say that. And it's really, I don't know if a human being can detect that fine line between not being a Christian at all, a natural person, and being a carnal Christian. Why? The Bible tells us that you will know people by their fruits. A believer in Christ will be seen and evidenced by what comes out of their life, the fruit that comes out of their life, spiritual fruit. So naturally, if someone has the Spirit of God living in them and they've changed from being a natural person to a spiritual person, then out of them you'll see spiritual things that come out of their life. And those spiritual things are things that you find in the Bible. So there'll be things matching up. But he actually tells us there's another category of people that they, they must have some fruit somewhere, but they, they're truly born again, but they're living for themselves and for the world. That's called a carnal Christian. Why carnal? Because carnal means fleshly. That means they're naming the name of Christ, but they're just doing whatever they want. So that's, that's a very fine line that I would not want to walk because the Bible tells us there, that there are people that they think that they are going to heaven and are saved, but God will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. So that's a fine line. But anyway, that it, it is a line. So we're told that there, these church, people in this church in Corinth that Paul is saying, I wanted to speak to you. And I wanted to speak to you on a, a level that I enjoy speaking to people um, in regard to, and that's spiritually. So if, if you're a believer, one of your delights will be to enjoy speaking and fellowshipping with other people in the spirit. That is actually a, a gift that God has given us. It's hard enough being believers in this world. 
being in it but not of it. And so fellowship is one thing that he gives us that helps us in this world. It gives us a little snippet of heaven, a little enjoyment of heaven. Do you know if you read through the book of Revelation, you see a lot of singing. Have you guys noticed that? But you won't find a solo. Did you know that? You'll find choruses. Because in heaven, all of the distinctions and all the problems and all the difficulties that we can have interpersonally and interrelationally will all be gone because we won't be in the flesh anymore. And so it will be one voice, one chorus in heaven, and thank God for that. But Paul is saying, I wanted to speak to you the things of God, but I couldn't. And he, t- he says, because you're carnal, your you're thinking, your attitude, your lifestyle is so self-centered and about you that I can't even have a discussion with you. So that's how he starts off. And it goes from there. He explains that. He says, I fed you with milk, meaning when I was first there and when you first received the gospel and you got saved and your life was changed and this church was forming and developing and people were on fire for the Lord. He says, at that time, I was, I was teaching you things. He calls it milk. His teaching, he's, he would call it as milk, not with solid food. In other words, he's saying that when he first came, he was talking about some of the elementary principles of the faith and helping them to understand and helping them to grow. And like a baby that's unable to digest and handle uh, brisket when they're not having teeth and digestive system can't handle that. He's saying, I didn't give you brisket. I gave you milk and you grew and you digested it and you understood it. Then he says, for until now, you were not able to receive it. So he's saying there, there should be some sort of expected progression, right? Would we think that that would be normal if a baby was born? And as that baby's born, you'd see some sort of progression. That would be normal, right? Well, what would you think if there wasn't a progression in a baby? If they weren't developing, what would you think? Something's wrong. But do you realize in much of Christianity today, we think that's normal? A stunted growth and development of a believer, and and we actually celebrate that. And we actually tell um, one another things. I, I remember one time when I first moved out here, my real estate agent's husband was boasting because he went to a church. He said, it's like church for dummies. And it's like when we get into the Bible, it's like the Bible for dummies, meaning they don't talk about the deep things of God whatsoever. And when a, a church is called out of the world to be light, the light of the world becomes so like the world that it's undistinguishable. And the people are being attracted to it because, as I've heard many people say, it feels so 
not like church. And I don't know what, you know, people might have all different sort of feelings where they came from, from church, but church should be where they should no doubt be able to experience God, know God, understand God, see God, learn of God, and unapologetically. So we shouldn't have to hide that. Jesus never did. Jesus never dummied down his doctrine. Jesus never worked to be more accepted. He worked to speak the truth more. And so this is, this is something that is uh, troublesome for Paul. You can see as he writes this, that, that he's troubled by this. You might want to say he's in pain. He's, he's hurting because of what's happening to this church. And he's saying there's no progression. And he's saying there's not much even I can do to talk to you about these things because you can't handle it. You can't receive it. So in verse 3, he says you're still carnal. You're still fleshly. And he gives, he gives a few little snippets about that that might help us. He said... For where there are envy, strife, and divisions. So he, he's saying those are some characteristics that's going on in church. How would you like to go to a church like that? So no church is perfect, right? These, these are something that we should not be okay with. And the Bible gives us remedies for these things, how to deal with these things. And we should, we should go about handling things the way the Bible tells us because the glory of God is so important. This is why Paul is dealing with this. And he's, he's saying there's, there's envy. So where there should be unity, where there should be people pulling in the same Direction where there should be people who are dead to themselves and surrendered to the will of God. Instead of that, there's carnal fighting and jealousy and people looking at other people and wanting to do what other people are doing and upset because other people are doing some of the things that they want to do. But not only is there envy, there's strife. So there's just this constant pushback, constant um, coming against, constant res resistance. That's a a sign of carnality. The Bible tells us that wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, willing to yield, full of mercy, and full of good fruit. So that's the characteristic of how even though we are fleshly and we do have disagreements and strife, but we can come to the table because God is more important than our self and our own agenda, that's how we fix that. But if, if there's none of that going on, then there's nothing fixed. And it just spreads. That sort of thing spreads like cancer or wildfire. And then he says division. So ultimately, that's what Satan wants to do. So the church united is strong. That's Psalm 133 talks about how good and pleasant it is when my brother, brethren dwell together in unity. 
the early church, they were of one accord. And that's not talking about a car. It's talking about their unity. They're all pulling in the same direction. They all wanted the same thing. And they weren't about themselves. They were about the glory of God. And, and so Paul is addressing this, and he's, he's hurt. He says, these divisions among you, are they not carnal and behaving like mere men? So he's making this point that these behaviors show that you're carnal because when one is truly born again and led by the Spirit, it's not themselves and their agenda that's moving forward, but it's the Holy Spirit. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? It's not this. It's primarily love. And so as he points it out, this out, he's saying there's no difference between what's going on in your church and what's going on in the corporation or the business or wherever, whatever institution of the world you want to pick out. It's, he's saying you're the same as them. But yet we're called to live our life in such a way where we're different to attract people to Christ. So it should be Christ living through us. And as Christ is living through us, that's going to affect our relationships with one another. But if we're in charge of our life and we're governing our life and we're not saying, Lord, your will be done, not my will be done, and not willing to do the hard things, then we have a mess here. He says in verse 4, For when one says, I am of Paul, another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Again, pointing out these divisions, and, and we might this can happen on a micro level and a macro level. So micro level would just be certain groupings in church, and you know, there's nothing wrong with certain people that you connect with and do more with than other people, but... When you do that to the exclusion of other people, then you're, you can be doing this sort of thing. But then on a macro level, it's when you say, well, you're of this denomination or of this non-essential theological bent, and so you're garbage, you're trash, or I can't talk to you, I can't relate to you. But Paul is saying we're all the body of Christ. On a macro level, if someone's truly a believer in Jesus Christ, do you know we're all together across the whole world? That's amazing, isn't it? That there is a special spiritual connection that you have with someone that's also a believer right now in, say, Armenia or Uganda, or Haiti, or Russia. But and if you meet them, and they're a true believer, you'll have a connection like that. It's amazing. So you have, you have the macro and micro. And it, so, so what does that say for all these distinctions within the body of Christ? And, and maybe there can be a, an allowance for just a, a different bent, you know, the way people like to worship, maybe you know, more liturgical or formal, some less liturgical, less formal, and maybe there's a allowances 
for that and stylistic things and things like that. But when we start dividing, and that's how many denominations have actually started, it's, it's because of division, and then another denomination starts off that denomination because of the division. And so that, that seems like, if, if you weren't a Christian, that would be very confusing, wouldn't it? Like, how come none of you guys can get along very well? How come there's, how many denominations, does anybody know? You could Google it, AI it, or whatever. But there's a, there's a lot of denominations. But at the end of the day, there's only one church. Did you know that? It's the Church of Jesus Christ, which is all true believers in Jesus Christ. So he goes on and, and explains this and draws this out. He says in verse 5, he says, Who then is Paul? And who's Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. In other words, he's saying, don't put any abnormal credibility or stock in a human instrument because they're just instruments. He's saying, like, say, a famous painter that painted an amazing, you know, Mona Lisa or something. Nobody gets the paintbrush and looks at it and says, that is so amazing. Look at that paintbrush. They give credit to the, what, painter. But see, that's what he's saying. He's saying, and, and this is important because this, this is a, a big problem that we give so much or put so much into the instrument. And not only can we put so much into the instrument, then a lot of times we begin to worship the instrument. And we call that a vessel or whatever, whatever God is using. And what Paul is saying is it has nothing to do with the individual, just how God used the individual. So God gets the glory. It's God's thing. And he goes on, he says, he says, I planted, speaking of the church there, I planted. And then Apollos came and he watered it. But God gave the increase. You know how huge that is? What that tells us is that it is completely up to God to add to the church. God adds the increase. That has been extremely helpful to me over the years to understand that. That means I don't add the increase. That means that it's not okay for us to go and try to make something happen. In other words, that's not the instruments department. The instruments department, we're going to see later, is not that. But Paul is making this huge, huge, important for our day and age application is for us to understand 
that it is God who adds the increase. And so we're, we don't, we're not given the luxury or the right to go about and try to manipulate or manufacture large gatherings, especially when we take away the things of God from the large gatherings. And that's what we see going on today. There is a great fear that if you teach the Bible verse by verse, line by line, that people won't come, that a church can't survive, that it's boring. And you know what? Maybe it is boring, but it's right. Maybe it doesn't have the sizzle of a laser show. But let's, let me just tell you, the church is not as good as the world as being the world. Let the world be the world. Go to a laser show. Go to a concert. Go where there are smoke machines and lights flashing and things like that. But let the church be the church because the church can only do well what God has called it to do. And we find that in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples and teach them to obey the word of God. Acts 2.42. They met together daily, steadfastly. What did they do? Prayer, fellowship, breaking of bread and doctrine. Was that enough to change the whole world? Was that enough for the whole known world at that time to hear the gospel? Absolutely. It was the power of the Holy Spirit working. And so in verse 7, it says, So neither he nor plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God gives the increase. So he's making that statement again. In verse 8, he says, Now he who plants and he who waters, they're one. In other words, they're in it for the same reason. We're on the same team, he's saying. We want the same thing, don't we? We want to see people saved and grow in their faith. Don't we all want that? So if we are nodding, we all want that, then if you're a believer, then God's given you a spiritual gift to exercise to, so that can happen. But watch this. In verse 8, it says, Now, he who plants and he who waters, they are one. And each one will receive his own reward, get this, according to his labor. So our reward, so it's very clear there are rewards. He's talking about our rewards in heaven. And those rewards have nothing to do with the results of our faithfulness. Why is that? That's God's department. What we are responsible for, here it says our labor. That means we are responsible to live 
out and fulfill our calling that God has placed on our life by exercising and using the spiritual gifts that he's given us and whatever resources that he may have given us. So, Paul, you're telling me all I have to worry about is walking in the plan that you set out before me and laboring, working at it? So you can't get around that word, working. Working in the things of God, whatever that may mean. It's, it's individual. So then the question is, well, what's your calling? You may say, I don't know what my calling is, and that's okay. But do what is right in front of you now. And do that the best of your ability. Put your energy and your strength and your effort into it. And you know what? God's going to bless that. And not only does he bless it, then he puts it in your eternal account. Cha-ching. How's your bank account? This is amazing. This goes counter to what we see in our culture regarding Christianity today. We see just the opposite. But what we're called to be is just workers in the calling that God has called us. And if God has given us uh, grace to do that, then we can put our energies and our strength in that. Think about the, I think it's Matthew 25, the parable of the talents or minas. So one was given five, one, two, and one, one. So basically, there are three different people, and they were given, I, I believe those talents would be the, the grace of God to do what he's called us to do. And one, the guy that got five, he took that grace of God that God had given him to do what God has called him to do, and he used it. He exercised it. He labored in it. And you know what happened? He got five more. So he had ten. So that, would, that can be looked at as those are rewards because he exercised himself in the things that God gave him. There's another guy he got two, and you might say, well, he, he's not going to get as many rewards. He's going to be messed up. But because he was faithful, he also received his reward, and he doubled what he had, and his reward will be based on simply the amount of labor he did to the extent of the amount of grace that he had to do what God had called him to do. Does that make sense? But then there was another guy. How many? Did he, well, he got one, but what did he do with it? He did nothing with it. He buried it. And as he buried it, then it was time to stand before God. And he said, hey, I got, I got your one thing back. That means he didn't do anything with what God has given him. He didn't labor in the grace that God gave him to do the things that God has set before him. And the, do you know the reason why? He, he said that I know you, God, to be a man who takes where he hasn't given. I'm paraphrasing. But the reason he didn't exercise 
the grace that God gave him to fulfill the calling that God set before him is he said that you're just going to take more from me than you've given to me. And because of that attitude, he was actually cursed. But, you know, sometimes we can think, boy, if, if I fully surrender to the Lord, my life's just, he's going to take everything from me. But God only takes everything bad from us to give us everything good. So he strips us of the things that are not good so he can give us the things that are good. And so here we see just that illustration of that and how important is this whatever much or little that God has given us that we simply labor in that area of grace. And as we do, then God will be sure to put that into our eternal account. And then he says in verse 9, For we are God's fellow workers. We're all working with God. That's amazing, isn't it? And you are God's field. So Paul's sort of using these analogies, and he's talking about the church at Corinth, and he's saying you're God's field, and you are God's building. So just two analogies, and he's saying this is the grace that God gave me that I, I exercised and labored myself in that grace, and so now there's a church there. So now there's a, a building. He's using metaphor. He's not talking literally, but he's saying, he's saying there's the work of God there simply because I exercised myself in the grace that God give me, gave me to do that. So verse 10, he says, He did it according to the grace of God, which is given to me. So that's key, right? So we can't do more than the grace that God gives us to do it. That's why we shouldn't strive to do what someone else is doing or be like someone else that we get into this sort of comparison or feeling less than like Greg Laurie or I don't know, Chuck Smith or like, well, they're, they're big shots, I'm not. You, we can't say that. No believer can say that because those people are not big shots. We're not big shots. God's the big shot. And because he's the big shot, he can use any of us little shots. And he can do great and mighty things through anybody who walks simply in the grace of God. And just the smallest act of obedience to the Lord has eternal benefits, eternal treasure. Little things. Encouraging someone. Boom, eternal blessing. Eternal gift. Praying with someone. Reading the scripture, sharing the scripture. Those are eternal things being built up. It doesn't have to be this big thing, but God takes our little thing and supercharges it and makes it an eternal thing. But watch this. He says, as a wise master builder, Paul's talking about himself. He says, I have laid the foundation at your church. And then another builds on it, probably talking about Apollos, but others too. But then he says, let each one, so individually, 
take heed or pay attention or be careful, I want you to, if you have a pen, circle that word. How. How he builds. What that means is we do not have the right to build God's house in the flesh. He's making a huge point here. This is huge. He's saying, as we labor in the Lord, we labor, work, and do what God has given us the grace to do. And as we do that, don't begin to get into the flesh to try to manufacture something. This is the temptation. To manufacture a spiritual result in the flesh. And that is impossible. So the flesh, our self, cannot produce spiritual things, only the Holy Spirit in us. So what's necessary is that we surrender to the Holy Spirit, allow Him to work in us and through us, and when that happens, then that is a work of God. But if we say, hey, our church is too small so we need to do something about that, and we need to fix that. And we go to a conference, and the conference is a conference about creative ways to attract more people to your church. Be careful how you do that. That's what he's saying. We don't have the right to do that. God's already given us the blueprint. He's given us the prescription, and we don't have the right. He doesn't allow us to say, okay, well, we're going to manufacture these spiritual things through fleshly means. It doesn't work like that. You can, it can work if your goal is to have a whole bunch of people and a whole bunch of money. But that can work in a lot of ways. How about if we take the entertainment model, we put that in the church, use that model, that'll be our blueprint, and then we'll have a lot of people. That works. You know that works? But it won't last. There'll be no fruit, spiritual fruit. That's what we want. We want spiritual fruit. We want something that's lasting. We want something where God is impacting and influencing. That's why he says, be careful how you do it. You don't have the right to do it your own way. Be careful how you do it. He says in verse 11, for no other foundation can one lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That gets me fired up. Because Jesus himself said, when the church is built on him, the gates of Hades will not prevail. The foundation is Jesus Christ. I love that. Do you know the peace that gives me to know that if we simply do what God has called us to do, as much as Satan wants to stop us and wreck us and destroy us, he can't. Because our foundation is immovable, unshakable, and always abounding in the things of the Lord. 
This foundation, then, is, again, the Great Commission. It's not built on a made-up Jesus. It's, made, it's built on a biblical Jesus. And it's built on this foundation of the cross, of the gospel, of the forgiveness of sins. These are all the, the milk, the initial things that God would have said to the church at Corinth. And as they begin to take it in, they began to grow. But then it's then teaching people how to walk in the things of God and how to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the things of the Lord and how to embrace their sanctification or their uh, growth in the things of God. And that's the how. That's the how of what the church should do and should be. And it's very simple. We're the ones that complicate it and make it weird. It's very simple. It's not easy, but it's very simple. So we don't want our fingerprints to be on any of this. That's why before we had our build out, we had a sign in the back that says, it's the Lord. We just wanted to be the Lord. And if it's what the Lord wants and what the Lord has designed, then we can rest easy at night. We can rejoice in that. We can thank God for that because it is His church. And we are His just co-workers, fellow workers, and we can only do what the grace of God has given us the ability to do, and that's it. But be careful of the temptation of manufacturing the things of God and then saying, look, it's the work of God, and saying, I didn't build that. That has nothing to do with me. Do we have any examples of that in the Scripture? It reminds me of Abraham and Sarah. And Sarah was, and Abraham were given a promise of a child that God would build the nation of Israel, but they were too old to have children. So what do you do when it seems impossible? I know we can fix that. Let's get together and come up with a solution because God's given us a promise, so let's make the promise happen. It doesn't work like that. We don't make the promise happen. We allow God to bring about the promise. So Sarah said, we have a maidservant over here, Hagar, why don't you go into her? It's a nice biblical way of... <laughs> why don't you go into her and then the child you have with her, hey, we'll call that the promised child. And God says, that's not the promised child. I didn't do that. That's your own thing. And then Ishmael was born, and that was not the promised child. It wasn't God's promise. It wasn't who God said. They took matters into their own hands to try to make God's promise happen. And God says, no, not a part of that. But later, God brought about his promise as he said he would. God is faithful. And that Isaac was the promised child. He was actually, that was the one. That was God's doing. He did a miracle. He did something supernatural. So we have to be very careful about that. So verse 12, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, straw, so a lot of 
different elements there, but don't forget what God is saying here. He's saying, be careful how you build because, in verse 13, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work Get this, of what sort it is. So that means, and he's talking about sort of a day of reckoning. This is a day of judgment for a believer, not for punishment, but for rewards. And our rewards as believers will be according to how are building the things of God are able to pass through this sort of fire that will test the purity of our work. So if we're doing things for God, but it's our own things, not God's things, if it's from a false motivation, selfish motivation, those things are going to be tested and they won't make it. They're not going to make it. They're going to burn up in the fire. These are not, this is not anything except for our works. Okay, don't get that confused. Believers do not face judgment for punishment because Jesus took their punishment, our punishment. But our works will get judged. So Paul is encouraging them and saying, be careful and pay attention how you're doing things. Because there will be a time where they, they will be tested. Now, we'll be tested, as we've been saying, according to our faithfulness to what God has called us to do and our trusting in Him to do it through us. So another way to see that is our obedience our faithfulness to what God has laid out before us and called us to do. And as we do that, we have the confidence that those are the things that are eternal. So the, the work that we do, they'll be eternal and we'll be rewarded for them eternally. So it's scriptures like this that have been modeled for me in Calvary Chapel to where I've seen through Pastor Chuck and through my pastor back in California, I saw what it really looked like for someone not just to say they trust the Lord, but to really do that. It's one thing to say you trust the Lord. It's a whole other thing to actually do that. And I saw that. And I read scriptures like that, and then I see what's going on in the world. And I say, well, that's not what the Bible says. And that's not a work of God. And so it's important as we have established this church, we do the best we can to walk simply in obedience to what God has laid out before us. Nothing more, but nothing less either. And sometimes that, well, I would say, for all of us, it's gonna, God's going to call us to go outside of our comfort zone. 
further than we think that we have the ability to do. And we'll say things like, well, I can't do that. And God said, I know you can't do that. You're not doing it. And we say, well, not me, and I don't know about me. And, that's, and God says, if he's called you to do it, then he's given you the grace to fulfill it. But see, that's where the supernatural things begin to occur in our life. And we see the power of the Spirit, and we, we look and we see what God's doing, and we say, that's you, Lord. That's so not me. And there's this big distinction when it's the work of God versus a work of man. And the power of God that's working through an individual, but then also working through a church, that's pretty much what, what the whole Calvary Chapel thing was. It's just unexplainable, and, and there's no re rhyme or reason, and just God said, I'm going to do this. And next thing you know, there's about 2,000 Calvary chapels across the world, and God's done an amazing work. But we can't rest on the past because God has a work for us now. And I don't know if, if the need was greater then. It seems like it's greater now. So, okay, God, here we are. What are you going to do here? What are you going to do through us? Who are you going to reach? Who are you going to touch? Lord, here we are. Show me where to step, and I'll step there. And that's how it works. He says in verse 14, If anyone's work, which he has built on, if it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through the fire. So a believer is not going to not make it through the fire, but their works won't make it through the fire. And then he says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? So he's, when he says you, he's not talking about an individual. He's talking about the church. The you here is plural. Later he'll talk about individuals possessing the Holy Spirit. That's not what he's talking about here. So he's talking about this church, and he's saying, don't, don't you know that there's this supernatural element about the gathering of the saints together and the building of this church? And he's comparing it to the temple. And the word that he's using for the temple, if you're sort of familiar with the temple, if you're not, it's okay, but... There's a whole temple complex that was large and that there are a lot of different groups allowed in different places in the whole temple complex. But here he's talking about the Holy of Holies. So he's saying, you are the place where the glory of God was. He's saying, you, this church. So what does that mean for the church? This is something amazing for the church. The church is where the glory of God is. The church is where the spirit is. What's the church? It's not this building. It's you guys and me. It's all of us. We're the church. This is where the glory is. This is where the power of God is. Why? Because each of us individually possess the power of the Holy Spirit. So now it's important for us to be open to the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through our life. And when you have that, then you have a supernatural work of God. So he says in verse 17, If anyone defiles the temple of God, 
God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. That's heavy. In other words, God is saying, don't mess with the church. He's saying to false prophets, false teachers, people that lead people astray in the name of God, or even people that come to to ruin or destroy the work of God in a particular fellowship. He says it's not going to go well for you. Don't come against the things of God. So in verse 18, he says, "Let, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age... Let him be a fool that he may become wise. In other words, when we forget the power of the Holy Spirit and the trust in the plan and the working of God, and then try to use our know-how and other things to do God's work instead of being faithful and obedient to God's work, He's saying it's better to be dumb to those worldly things so that the power of God will be manifest in and through your life. That's heavy, isn't it? He says in verse 19, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written... He catches the wise in their own craftiness, quoting from Job 5, and then quoting from Psalm 94. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. They're all yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. So what is he saying? He's saying When you look at an individual, which Paul has mentioned is a vessel, as the answer that this person is going to save Christianity. Apollos is, he's the one who's going to spread it all. If it's not for him, if if it's not going to work. And he's saying, Apollos, Paul, Cephas is Peter. He said, they're all yours. They're all part of the gift that God has given as instruments to spread His Word. So if you'd like to listen to a few different people and read a few different people, well, don't lock in on that person and say, well, that person, they're it. God says they're part of it, and this one's part of it, but they're all yours. They're all for blessings. They're all for goodness. And then He goes into a... figure a speech mode, which is a common thing that they did in the Grecian Empire. It's called a merism. You can look that up, merism. 
And what they would do is take extremes from uh, poles, life and death, things like that, north and south, things like that. And they'd take the most extreme things to make a point that everything in between those things, Alpha and Omega and all but he goes on the stream of things to try to get them to, to understand if you're a believer, you don't have to pick and choose and, and say, well, I'm Calvary Chapel, so I, there's other people, I can't listen to MacArthur because he's maybe a little Calvinist for me. And I, You don't need to do that. They're all, he's a gift. MacArthur's a gift. Chuck Smith's a gift. You can fill in the blank. Benny Hinn's not a gift. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But he's saying, hey, all of these things, this is the amazing thing for a believer. Even life and death, God uses all those things for our benefit. So we can be free in Christ to love him and enjoy him and serve him and trust him. So a very important chapter, a heavy chapter, but critical. And remember, this is a, a rebuke that they need to get back on track. So maybe we as a church, we can get back on track in trusting the power and work of God to do what he wants here in this body, that we would let God freely work and that we would be obedient to what he's called us to do as a church and then he gets the glory. And that's what we want. We just want God to be glorified. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. I thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters. I pray a blessing on them. Now and as they go, I pray that tonight they would just take some time to present themselves to you as holy living sacrifices and just say, Lord, your will be done. Say, Lord, here I am, send me. And Lord, we seek your will and we ask individually and corporately that you would just show us what that next thing is and help us to continue to take these steps of faith in following you and trusting you we pray for the supernatural we pray for the spiritual we pray for the power of the holy spirit to work here in jesus name amen all right god bless you guys have a great night and lord willing we'll see you on sunday